0: Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Um, we'll be starting in verse 8 there, picking up where I last left off, the last time I had the privilege to preach um, from Colossians back in October. And as you're turning there, just want to remind you of kind of where we've been. We moved past um, chapter 1, which was all about the truth of, of Christ and all of His glory, His supremacy and His sufficiency. Um, we saw that He was um, all that we need for life and godliness. He was firstborn over all creation because he has created all creation. He sustains all of it. It all exists for him. He's firstborn over redemption, firstborn over the church um, by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. Um, Paul introduced his own ministry as one of um, service in the household of Christ toward the people of God. Um, And we moved last time I was in Colossians Really from the indicatives, what is true, what is theology, what are the the propositions of the text, to the imperatives. How we should live in light of what is true. What is true about Christ and what is true about ourselves in relation to Christ. Um, And we really saw last time in Colossians 2 verses 6-7 through this kind of hinge statement of Colossians. This thing that sits right at the center of the book that connects the indicatives to the imperatives. We really saw a kind of great imperative, walk in Christ. This is kind of all-inclusive, and it's going to include all of, of many imperatives that Paul is going to give through the rest of the book. Um, and when We saw that in relation to the statement, as you received Christ, walking in Christ is simply knowing, treasuring, and enjoying Christ in every conceivable situation and area of our lives. And just as receiving Christ is not a matter of human will or human effort but rather the gracious provision and revelation of God to us. God reveals Christ to us. So is walking in Christ. It's really a manner of walking out what Christ is doing in us, being built up and established in the faith, rooted in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at at the next of a series of imperatives that Paul is going to give. And, And really, what happens next after this imperative, as you receive Christ, so walk in him, rooted in the faith, established, built up in him just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. What comes next is a a very long sentence, a very Pauline sentence, um, very run on. It it goes from verse 8 to verse 15. So we're not going to cover all of that this morning. Um, Lord willing, we'll get to the end of verse 10. And I've got plenty of notes, so I think that that will be more than enough for us. But Paul's imperative here that he gives... Really concerns how the Colossians are to guard themselves from being persuaded to turn from knowing and treasuring and enjoying Christ to some other form of, of truth, some other form of knowledge, some other way of approaching life. And he calls this a philosophy. Something that would turn Christ's mind to, or turn the Christian's mind rather to earthly things and make his life before God a matter again of human understanding and human will and human effort. And what Paul is warning us against today in this text is not really philosophy in the sense of like an academic discipline, um, or or really just philosophy in the purest sense. From the Greek, the word is philosophia, um, coming from the words phileo, to love, and sophia, wisdom. So literally, the love of wisdom. And a love for wisdom is something all Christians should have. I mean, we're told in the Psalms and Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Another word which conveys a sense of wisdom here is logos, from which we get the word logic. And a word which is used consistently in the scriptures in reference to both the word of God as written and the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. And Christians are to be a people of wisdom and a people of logic. There's no legitimate form of Christianity which encourages you not to have wisdom, not to have logic as a Christian, not to use your minds and the reasoning ability that God has given you. And faith itself, true faith as defined by the scriptures, is characterized by knowledge and wisdom and a certainty of what God has revealed, a certainty of what God has promised. So what Paul warns against in our passage today is not a love for biblical wisdom or godly reasoning with the, with the minds the Lord has given us, but rather an unhealthy pursuit of the wrong kind of wisdom. And this is because of the search for wisdom, this kind of search for enlightenment or higher consciousness, learning, whatever you want to call it, is not inherent to just Christians, but because we've all been made in the image of God, both believer and unbeliever, we all search for wisdom in some sense. Um, but the starting point for most in their search for wisdom and revelation is not God, but man, not, not creator, but creation. And because God does not enter the, into the equation, the fear of God is not present in, in the wisdom and, and philosophies of man. And so in that sense, there can be no neutrality between the wisdom and reasoning and systems of thought that the world gives us and the ways in which Christ has commanded us to think. There's no compromise between the, the wisdom of worldly philosophy and the reasoning of the people of God. Uh, and that's really the sense that Paul intends to convey in this text. He really gives a simple dichotomy. You have captivity to the world's reasoning or you have Christ. You have fullness or you have emptiness. You have truth or you have fiction. You can't mix the two. And in our modern age, um, the admonition that Paul gives here, I don't think has lost any relevance at all. If anything, this text is more relevant today than when it was given to the Colossians. And that's because we live in an age of unprecedented access to as many winds of doctrine as there are grains of sand on the shore. Everyone has a message, and many, many people try to set themselves up as leaders or teachers or influencers of those around them. Everyone, it seems like everyone, has a YouTube channel. And there may be three or four people, especially concerning seminary students, that don't have their own podcast at this point. Um, I can't count how many books or seminars, conferences I have participated in, in the business world on the subject of, of leadership. And even when you watch the news on TV now, it's, it's selling you something. It's no longer reporting what happened, but they try to influence you. They try to tell you why it happened and, and what it means. And with a few keystrokes, you can access thousands of sermons on any text or any subject. You can download hours of content from any popular thinker with a click of a button, whether it's the wokest of the woke or the most libertarian or conservative. And pretty much all of them alike have nothing close to a biblical or a Christian worldview. Like the fool in Proverbs, we live in a culture that takes little pleasure in understanding, but much in expressing its opinion. There are countless institutions of higher learning, most of them corrupted, and anyone can qualify themselves through education or experience, or nowadays with ethnic identity, arrogating authority to themselves, not based on biblical qualifications or biblical experiences, but rather by what culture considers desirable. And I think for... Many of us here, um, for anyone that has kind of grown in the faith and started discipling others, one of the most troubling things I've found when discipling brand new believers or witnessing to those whom the Lord appears to be drawing to himself is to get them away from listening to false teachers and heretics and and charlatans on, on YouTube or online or on television and get them to consume more biblical content in their hunger and curiosity for the things of God. As I'm sure our pastors or really any other local church pastor can tell you, even the orthodox teachers, the Orthodox and the Christian teachers um, that are not heretical online, they cause a lot of problem in the local church because immature Christians have a tendency to become fans of their favorite celebrity preachers, whether it 's on YouTube or Facebook, and they tend to ignore or contradict the discipline and instruction of their own pastors in favor of big names like Keller or Piper. Um, Chandler, Durbin, White, MacArthur, or some other well-known but distant human and fallible personality. And regurgitating the words of even the most faithful and careful of teachers online is no substitute for doing the work yourself, for coming to your own understanding, your own growth in the Word of God. And really what it signals is a lack of personal conviction and a lack of Christian maturity. And because it's so easy to consume content anytime we want it, we can fall into this trap of accumulating teachers for ourselves to suit our own passions. We can hear what we want to hear anytime we want to hear it to the damage of our minds and our souls. And we don't learn to evaluate what is being taught by the objective standard of God's word, but rather the teaching of these other people that we accumulate for ourselves becomes our standard of learning, becomes our standard of testing God's word. We pick our favorite personalities and we take what they say without any sort of biblical Examination And thinking of it really reminds me of a line from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, for some of you who may have read it, where Bilbo is speaking to Frodo and he says it's a dangerous business going out your door. You step out onto the road and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And such is the case with us as believers when we venture into this marketplace of ideas that's so easy to access today. And we see the mix of good, bad, and ugly theology that is present in the evangelical church. And those who are not personally rooted and built up in Christ, established in the faith, as we saw in the last text, they're liable to be swept to and fro by every wind of doctrine and subsequently make shipwreck of their faith. So with that context in mind, this kind of reason for his admonition here, I want us to listen to Paul's charge to the Colossians and to us as the biblical readers, given as a first importance in our walk In and with Christ. So I'm going to read the text. I'm actually going to back up to the beginning of chapter 2 here in Colossians. And I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us. Starting in verse 1. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. And the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. you'd bow with me. Father, I thank you for this time together that we have. I thank you for the gift of your word, Lord, the gift of your Holy Spirit sent by our Lord Christ God to teach us all the things concerning concerning Christ's commands. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guard my mind and my mouth, keep me from error, keep me from pride or self-exaltation, Lord. I pray that you would build us up together in love and unity with your word. May we see clearly who Christ is in this passage today. God, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your word. Um, Submit us to your word. Give us a humility before you, God, that we would obey what you command us to do. Help us to rejoice in what we find here concerning Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I firstly, I want us to see here in verse 8, we see firstly the, the imperative of the charge here. And it says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And the imperative or command Paul gives is simply see to it. In one word in the Greek, blepo, watch carefully, be vigilant, keep lookout or stay alert. And the intended purpose or result of this imperative is that no one takes you captive. And that word there is pretty unique. It's only here in the New Testament. Sulago yeo. And it's this kind of invented compound word that gives the sense of robbery or literally like someone sweeping in, picking you up and carrying you off as a captive of war. And so the the language here really kind of paints this vivid picture as if the Colossians are to be on a watchtower, keeping lookout for an invader in the middle of the night. And, And that's the kind of expectation or cautiousness we are to have. For what Paul calls philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, the elementary spirits or the elementary principles of the world. It's false, deceptive, subtle, nice sounding, good looking teaching which takes us away from our place in Christ. False teaching which gets people to believe lies and keeps them away from true salvation, from satisfaction in Christ, to true belief, true repentance or blessing in God. And this kind of What is really a satanic invasion doesn't come loudly. It doesn't come angrily or with pitchforks and a red tail. It comes reasonably and kindly. It appears as an angel of light. It soothes us with words that appeal to our senses or our our common sense. And the ones who bring it might sound humble or knowledgeable or, or wise. They might sound gentle, gently asking the question, Did God really say, like their father before them in the garden, and compared to the soft touch of these false teachers and their subtle teachings, the bold and clear proclamation of the word of God, the blinding light and the burning fire of God's holiness seems harsh and extreme. It seems unreasonable by comparison. And the teachers who bring these kinds of philosophies, they're always tactful and they're always eloquent. They, they always seem better educated, more refined, more talented, more intelligent than those who simply take God at his word. These people are always sneaky, these individuals that Paul seems to have in mind here. They work behind the scenes, often behind the backs of of the church's shepherds, avoiding open confrontation and seeking to undermine those who preach, teach, and apply the truth. In 2 Corinthians, they're characterized as false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ or servants of righteousness, in Matthew, Jesus calls them false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These are the ones in Second Peter who secretly bring in destructive heresies, evil people and imposters in Second Timothy. Fierce wolves who will come among the church, not sparing the flock, and arising even from among the leadership in the church, according to Paul's address to the Ephesian elders in Acts. And they introduce a slippery but gradual slope. And the consciences of those who listen to these people, who accumulate these teachers to themselves and emulate them, are more and more seared until they're destroyed. And that's the threat that Paul is really trying to identify here for us in Colossians 2. It's, it's no small threat. It's something that would threaten the very basis of our life in Christ. And it's in an understanding the nature of Paul's command to be watchful. We can also observe two important implications of this charge. Firstly, there's the humbling possibility that we might be taken captive. The humbling possibility that we might be taken captive. Time and time again in Scripture, we're warned not only about false teachers, but against following false teaching or deceiving ourselves by imitating these false teachers. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul gives us repeated warnings. In Romans 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul warns again in 1 Corinthians 3, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age... Let him become a fool, that he may become wise. In chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In chapter 15, he says again, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In 2 Corinthians, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. In Galatians, he says again, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In Ephesians, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In 2 Thessalonians, he simply says, let no one deceive you in any way. And the fact that all of these warnings, and more than I listed, are in Scripture should tell us that there is a very real, very present danger here for us. And for all who profess Christ. And there's nothing more deceptive than the prideful self-deception. We do to ourselves when we think and act as if we are immune to false teaching. If we're immune to these deceitful philosophies. And those who won't acknowledge their weakness in the flesh, their own infirmity, are the most likely to be deceived. The most likely to be led astray. The most likely to fall into sin because it's pride that comes before the fall. I mean, you as a Christian, you have the internal enemy of your own flesh, The external enemy of the world and its sinful systems. And then you have the capital E enemy, Satan, the accuser of the saints and his his demons. Ought you not to take those threats seriously, to leave no provision for the flesh, no opportunity for the devil? It's not confidence or strong faith to act like the world, the flesh and the devil pose no threat to you. Pose no threat to your unguarded mind and conscience. You're not being strong in faith. You're not being confident. You're being foolish. It's the fool who walks into a fight, Proverbs tells us. The fool who runs into danger heedlessly. And it might be stretching the analogy a bit, but I appreciate Tom Askell's observation concerning um, wolves in sheep's clothing. The very fact that wolves come in sheep's clothing, sheep's skins, implies that the wolves were successful in preying on the sheep somewhere down the line. That somewhere sheep were deceived and that they lost their lives. You are not invincible to sin. None of us are. And it's the height of foolishness, not wisdom, to make light of the possibility that you might be led astray. You're not immune to sin of any kind and it's wrong to presume upon the kindness of God by intentionally putting yourself into any situation where sin and deception is likely. The assumption cannot be that always that we are not in sin. That we're not wrong or not deceived. There's there's really nothing in our flesh, in ourselves, that would inspire that kind of confidence in ourselves. Our Our flesh is warped. Our hearts are deceitful. We're corrupted by sin. But there is one who is always true. There is one who is never corrupted. In whom there is no darkness at all. No shadow or variation due to change. And he must be our marker and our standard. If we are to know Anything for certain, we must examine ourselves and plead with the Lord to examine us, to seek out any wickedness in us that would make us vulnerable to deceptive teaching. If we're not well acquainted with our own weaknesses, we're not well acquainted with our own sinfulness. And if we're not well acquainted with our own sinfulness, we're not well acquainted with God's grace. This is important for us to know. The very fact that people are able to be deceived. There's a reason why the false teachers are indicted in Scripture. But so are the deceived. Because there is something in them that desires this kind of teaching. Something in them that has a vulnerability or a proclivity to be taken captive. And that's why he gives us here this, this kind of humbling truth that we might be taken captive. We must go about the business of killing our sin or it will be killing us, and the same can be said of being, of failing to be vigilant concerning false teaching. So we as Christians must be able to recognize even the most convincing and subtle of counterfeits, to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to be able to recognize when we, when we are being told what we want to hear in our flesh. We're being told what appeals to our, our base sin nature, and to take every thought, both our own thoughts and the, and the thoughts being introduced to us Take them captive and hold them up to the word of Christ to expose these works of darkness by the light of God's revelation in Christ. That's really the sense of what Paul is saying here. We must wage our own spiritual warfare against the teachers and the teachings that would take us captive. So we need to understand the humbling possibility that we might be taken captive. And because of that, we have the urgent and sober responsibility to ensure that we are not to ensure that we're not taken captive. And in order to effectively keep watch, in order to effectively wage spiritual war, we need to be able to recognize our enemy and our enemy's tactics. And the elders and, pa- the elders and pastors of Christ's church, they're given the responsibility of watching the flock generally. But here in Colossians, all of us as Christians are given the personal responsibility to watch ourselves. To watch ourselves and to watch the teaching that we consume. Paul gives every Christian that responsibility. And how is that accomplished? Paul tells the Colossians, and us as the reader, the first step to escaping and resisting captivity is identifying those who would take you captive. Identifying the tactics that would take you captive. We're not really told much about what's kind of classically called this Colossian heresy that Paul's responding to here with his letter. Though it does sound like Paul certainly may have had some individuals in mind. But we are told what this false teaching sounds like and what it does to us. Firstly, here in verse 8, we're told it is philosophy and empty deceit. There's no preposition in the Greek between these two phrases. Really, they're meant to be taken together. So philosophy is kind of the first noun, and empty deceit further clarifies what that is. So it's not the academic discipline of philosophy in view here, but rather it's a teaching that's intended to sound philosophical. It's supposed to sound wise, sound right, sound well thought out. And there are reasons behind the thoughts and practices expounded upon which sound godly and wise. But in actuality, they are not that way. They claim to be wise. They claim to offer you insight or power over the flesh, to offer you greater maturity in Christ. But ultimately, they offer you nothing but emptiness. That's, That's really what Paul is trying to express here. In other places, he's called these myths, speculations, fruitless quarrels and controversies over the law. Um, You have people that propound irreverent babble, silly speculations and self-contradictions, causing some to swerve from the true faith and to become fixated on worthless things. And I think you really kind of see this a lot generally in Christian culture. You You have people that are experts in very obscure branches of theology, very obscure things, right? I had one um, guy around my age who's aspiring to ministry tell me, Yeah, I've been learning a lot from my mentor. He's been telling me about how the constellations help us interpret the Bible. And he, he's giving me, I mean, several, several minutes of, of this kind of system of interpretation. But ultimately, you know, that, that claims to be wise. This guy has spent his life studying those things, but it has not helped him understand a single word of Scripture better. These are the type of things that that Paul is talking about. They sound wise. They sound sound reasonable. And they're meant to be impressive. These teachers rely on their their personality or experiences, their persuasiveness, their eloquence, their charisma. And it really doesn't matter what they say because it's empty. That's not the point that Paul's responding to here. He's not giving you a list of false doctrines. He's telling you this is what it sounds like. Their power is in how they say it. They're these influencers and those who try to build their brand in the public eye because they have a carefully cultivated image that is meant to appeal to a target audience, which often doesn't accord with reality. And the same can be said about the teachings brought by the people, the people Paul has in mind here. These teachers claim a special type of communion with God not available to other people, and not through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's their own special insight, their own mystical experiences, or their dreams, their visions, or even more worldly things, like their appeal to their heritage or their history. These teachings are intended to look good and sound right, but they cannot hold up to legitimate biblical examination, and they have nothing actually to do with Christ. And the same can be said of the trappings of religion, which often come with these teachings. They're meant to look and feel impressive, to make up for the fact that they actually don't contain any significance or power. The whole goal, as John MacArthur says in his commentary on this text, is to shift the focus from Christ to experience. And this is the reason why, you know, if you walk into any really any Catholic cathedral throughout history, you've had demonstrated in front of you the most amazing works of art and architecture, Known to mankind, when you walk in one of those buildings and you're overwhelmed with the beauty and the majesty of the surroundings, you're already being sold something that is not true. They have to have those buildings. They have to have the formal sounding liturgies, liturgies and the fancy priestly robes and attire because they're making up for what they lack in actual connection to God. An actual understanding of the truth of Christ and his word. And the same can be said of our more modern evangelical churches today. We have these huge, nice buildings with this amazing architecture, showy lights, excellent production values, great music, huge screens, beautiful people, trendy decorations, and a prosperous, immaculately dressed and styled teacher. Those are all styled that way in order to communicate something to you. They're trying their best to communicate what they think God should sound and look like, how they believe the wisdom of God and connection with God and the favor of God appears. And as someone God helped me that spent a few years in that type of environment that helped to kind of contribute to that, I can tell you the whole thing is just a performance It's literally it's just church transformed into a performance thoroughly rehearsed timed to the second made to appear exciting as if it is God who's attracting the big numbers and God who's attracting the big the big budget and God who generated the buzz and excitement and electricity of our experiences. But the entire thing was a hollow shell designed to be admired by a crowd. Just the same thing as a movie theater or a circus. And the whole thing falls apart when the smoke clears and the house lights are turned on and the results are compared to Scripture. And when these systems, when these types of teaching, they're truly examined, like the man behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz. They're shown for who they really are. that They're empty talkers and deceivers, charlatans, con men and women who have captivated you and extorted your time and your money and attention to make themselves great. That's the goal. And there are those who claim to be evangelical, a word which is meant to convey the urgency of the gospel. And yet they do not actually hold out the truths of Christ. And they don't hold out the clear offer of the gospel of Christ for the guilty sinners. Instead, they advertise a bill of goods for people to consume so that they can feel better about themselves while these teachers build their institutions on the backs of those who are headed to hell. Exploiting people. And there's an art and a science to this type of thing. You don't think this is cleverly designed to take people captive? I'll tell you how we did things when I was in that environment. Every three or four months, we would hold a big event. We'd have food trucks. We'd have things to bring people in. We'd talk about movies. We'd talk about the Super Bowl. Anything to get people in the door. Then shortly after that, we would preach a sermon or have a a series on serving, on getting involved in the church. And then soon after that, we'd have a series on giving. Rinse and repeat. You do that every three to four months. And the intention is to draw people in to build up attendance, give them something to do to keep them invested, to make the social cost of withdrawing too high. And then to persuade them to give so that you have a a bigger budget for the next event. That's not evangelism. That's not a mission of Christ into the world. That's a trap meant to draw in and keep and deceive people. It's meant to ensnare people and exploit them so that these teachers can perpetuate their lifestyles and the life and influence of the institution. That's what every cult of man at its fundamental level does. The church of Jesus Christ is fundamentally the only institution that does not exist for its own sake. It exists for the glory of Christ and the salvation of sinners. That's it. Every other institution, every other cult of man, whether it's the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses or the Church of Scientology or the Muslims, exists for the glory and edification and building up of the institution. And these sort of things seem wise to fleshly minds because they're working, because they're gaining traction. And those at the top of the scheme always point to the numbers, the attendance and the decisions, the baptisms, But all of their success is really only so much straw that will burn away at the judgment of Christ. Everything these systems and teachers claim to be doing for God really only benefited the teachers and the institutions and produced nothing of lasting spiritual worth. It's empty, vain, deceitful, and eternally fatal to those caught in the trap. Eternally lethal to those who are ensnared. This idea of empty and deceitful philosophy is further explained by Paul and a few more descriptive phrases. Firstly, as we go on in verse 8, it's according to human tradition. According to human traditions. And tradition is not something that's inherently wrong. You know, Paul talks to Timothy of the apostolic tradition, which is really the teachings of Christ given to the apostles and then handed on to others to be passed on from generation to generation. But traditions can also be a great way to preserve and perpetuate error. We use the term "traditional" a lot in reference to, to some other churches that we're frustrated with that have a lot of, of practices and beliefs that don't originate with with the gospel or with Scripture, but with man. Things which did not come from God, but rather the mind and imagination of man. And that's why Paul uses the term "human traditions" here. These teachings and practices are followed not because they're right. Not because they're godly, but because they're old. Empty teachings and human traditions have a lot of oughts or shoulds. A lot of things that we're supposed to do. A lot of things that we're supposed to be without a standard or a justification for why you should do them. And if it did not originate with God, it's empty and wrong. Every good and perfect thing, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. comes down from God. Every good thing originates with God. So what's left that can originate with man? The bad and the imperfect and the wrong. And that's the point that he's, he's attempting to convey here. If you cannot justify what you believe and what you practice or biblically derive why you believe it and why you practice it, it should be rejected. The longevity of a teaching cannot make up for its error. The popularity of a teaching, the, the, the supposed success of a teaching can't make up for its error. One of the chief um, condemnations from God to, to his people in Jeremiah was that they were practicing things which didn't originate from God. In that case, child sacrifice. He said, something which I did not command, nor did it ever enter into my mind. It doesn't mean that God wasn't aware it was going on, that he didn't know it would happen, but it did not come from him. It came from man. And I don't want to lay it on too thick, but when we try to serve God with our own way of doing things, It is every bit as repulsive to God as sacrificing our children in order to try to win the favor of God. It's rejecting what God has given in Christ, trampling underfoot the blood of Christ and the Word of Christ, and trying to achieve that which Christ gives us in our own effort. And we have so many cultural presuppositions that we don't even notice, things that we add to the traditions of God, which bind our consciences needly at some points, needlessly at some points, and they loose our consciences from what Christ has commanded us at others. And we, when we're in this kind of mode, we can major on minor points where Christ has given us more grace while we count as nothing the things, the serious things that we do that we, that offend the risen Lord and grieve the Holy Spirit. We can, with the Pharisees before us, strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And we feel all the more self-righteous because we're harsh on matters of personal conviction while being quiet on matters of serious immorality. And that's what happens when our guide and our standard is not according to the image of Christ, his holiness and his love and grace and truth, but rather according to the traditions of man. So we must labor in ourselves to discern how much of our views, how much of our worldview and understanding of ourselves and our lives is man-made and how much comes from God. There's not a single part of the true Christian faith that originated with humans. Not a single part of our true Christian practice that originated with man. In the way that we love one another, the way that we worship and work, the way that we date or marry or study or conduct our finances or raise our children or do church, we must examine ourselves in everything, always careful that what we do and and the way we do it is according to Christ. And not this selfish, man-centered, pseudo-wisdom. So firstly, that teaching which promises wisdom but in actuality is empty, it's according to human tradition. Secondly, these philosophies are according to the elemental elemental spirits of the word of the world. And there are a range of views concerning what this word in the Greek sortea means. Um, some relate it literally to these elements of the world known at the time in Greek philosophy water, earth, wind, and fire. Um, I don't really even know where to go with that, so I'm not going to pick that interpretation. Others relate it primarily to spiritual powers, um, demonic entities or evil spirits that influence false teaching. And ironically, on some sermons that I've listened to recently on this passage, um, they've taken this word, Stoikeia and ended up making this passage all about ranking of angels and levels of demonic powers and, and dominions. And I think that's, that ironically flips the text on its head and makes something in Colossians not about Christ. And if you're interpreting something in Colossians and you don't end with Christ you can be pretty confident that you've strayed somewhere along the line. And that way of usage is particularly unlikely because that that word was not used that way until really after Paul's time. So I'm going to move on from that. Uh, Others talk about the fundamentals of other worldviews, such as Judaism or or paganism that produce false teachings, pagan worship, astrology, magical practices. And, And there may be some merit to a few of these views. But I'm of the opinion that this word for elementary spirits, or rather, I think elementary principles is how it's better um, translated. It conveys the, the kind of simple mindedness, childishness, shallowness of these teachings, the, the earthly mindedness of these teachings. They make it all about the physical, all about man. And they say, do not touch, do not taste. Um, as he says later in Colossians um, 17, think 17. No, sorry, verse 20. It says if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits, the elemental principles of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And really what this what this kind of reduces Christianity or reduces a worldview about God to is a simple matter of kind of cause and effect. Don't do this thing or do this thing and you'll be blessed. You won't be punished. Do this specific act of worship and it will go well with you. And those who teach these kind of elementary principles, they really tickle sinful ears. Of man, we like to hear these things. They make people feel better about themselves, feel like they can do something about their own righteousness. Puffing up man's pride, satisfying fallen desires, emphasizing principles of human achievement, of moral reform, of self-fulfillment, of self-improvement. This is the kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of gospel. The kind of self-help, thank the man upstairs for your success kind of gospel. And even on the conservative side, we we can so easily pick out the the errors of the kind of leftist side of things, right? We talk about tyrannical governments and critical race theory. But this kind of rampant, man-centered, satanic false gospel is so prevalent in conservative thought today. It's a simple matter of, of cause and effect. Do this thing and you'll be blessed. And if someone is not blessed, you can condemn them because they must have not done the right thing. It's a false gospel that views sin as nothing more than life problems and offers nothing but life hacks in response. It's this kind of soft prosperity gospel that puffs people up with pride when they're blessed by God and causes them to look down on others if they have not received the same blessings in the providence of God. It plays upon valid principles found in Scripture. But it corrupts them and reduces the Bible and all of its wisdom to a set of prudent principles or rules by which you can have a prosperous, happy, healthy life. And really, this kind of of gospel is the American dream personified. Do these things. Be obedient to God and your marriage will be great. Your kids won't rebel or stray from you. Your bank account will grow and you'll reach financial peace. Your relationships will be conflict free. The world will love you and you'll get that promotion and maybe even you'll retire early so you can spend all that time and money you saved on your hobbies. And you can find really in one form or fashion this type of message being preached from a thousand pulpits on any given Sunday. This is the kind of preaching that man craves, the kind of teaching that has always been popular from the time of the Colossians until now. These elementary principles are the default frame of thinking for every person. This is the default way that the man that man tries to interact with God, just as the Jews tried to pursue a righteousness based on works, based on works of the law and not according to Christ. It's this view that tries to appease God and appease the divine through law. And really what it is, it's manipulating God to get what you really want. It has nothing to do with the glory of Christ. Nothing to do with the sufficiency and the satisfaction of Christ. It is all about pushing the right buttons on a cosmic vending machine so it can spit out what you really want in life, which is not Christ. And that's fundamentally what every other religion is about. They're empty ways of trying to relate with God, coming from the mind of man. They deceive all who follow them and hold them captive to this type of merit system. They twist the commands of God and the principles of wisdom in the word of God into simple cause and effect, a legalistic theology of prosperity. And they miss the seriousness of sin and the hopelessness of the human condition apart from God. And they rob the glory of Christ as the all sufficient and all wise savior. And the gospel does not offer us this. It doesn't offer us a system of atonement a system of religious appeasement, and neither does it give us a simple set of principles to live by so that we can get on better in the world. And I won't belabor this point, but neither is the gospel a commission to impose the law of God upon a culture, an attempt to mandate obedience to the law in order to advance the kingdom of Christ. And that's really a common view in Reformed Christianity, especially today. And all that that really is is a conservative social gospel, which tries to bind unbelievers and make them act like believers without any conversion or transformation of the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission is not the gospel. The Great Commission is not the gospel. We have to get this right. And the Great Commission is not a command to disciple nations or disciple governments into shape through Christian activism. It is a command to proclaim the gospel. And then to teach the commands of God to disciples from all nations who are converted by the gospel. The gospel tells us of a savior who is willing and able to take away our sin, to deliver us from the wrath of God, which we deserve and to reconcile us to God himself. It's about being saved from our works, about being saved from the penalty of the law. Saved from our sin, apart from works of the law, by the Savior, God has provided to us out of his gracious love. And the Bible is so much more than this manual for life. It does contain all that we need for life and godliness. But it is not a manual for life as if it's some sort of standard for behavior and that's it. It's not just about doing or not doing certain things. It's about being and beholding and knowing God in Christ. Beholding his glory and being joined to him by faith, being renewed in knowledge by the image of your creator. That's what the gospel gives us. And if any preacher or teacher offers you wisdom or favor from God, offers you connection to God or spiritual insight, power over sin, hope of life and eternal peace, and does not immediately step out of the way and show you the person and work of Jesus Christ, that person is a thief and a liar and he's trying to sell you something. He's trying to take you captive. And when we know what to look for as Christians, we can see to it that no one deceives us by this kind of empty teaching, captivates us by these philosophies. We firstly keep watch for others who bring this kind of teaching, but we secondly keep watch on ourselves, because our flesh loves this kind of teaching. And if we do not buffet our body to make it a slave to Christ, if we do not resist our sin to the point of bloodshed, we will fall captive to this type of teaching because it makes us feel great. And it's to bring these points about the emptiness of man-made, man-centered philosophies home that Paul contrasts them here in verse 9 with the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. His transition phrase at the end of verse 8, not according to Christ, not according to Christ. What is deceitful and empty and man-centered is not according to what is in Christ And in comparison, when we hold up these philosophies to the image of Christ and all of his glory and supremacy and sufficiency, these philosophies have never looked emptier and Christ never looks more satisfying. Paul here is really just simply returning to his theme that has gone all through the book of Colossians of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Christ is enough and these philosophies are found wanting Paul doesn't offer here his own philosophy, a dueling philosophy, his own source of truth. And that's because truth here is not an ism. It's not just a system of belief. Truth is a person. And that's why Christianity is not a competing cult or an ism or just another philosophy. We don't believe what we believe because of man, but because God has made us to believe it, And though Christianity has doctrines, they're living doctrines because they come from and originate in the living, abiding, incarnate Word of Jesus Christ, who is alive. The wisdom of humanity promises much and delivers nothing. No revelation, no meaning, no victory over the flesh, no hope of salvation, and no authority. It promises much but delivers nothing. But Christ has all that those philosophies promise and more. And he doesn't try to sell it to you. He doesn't advertise it. He doesn't wait for people to come to him to get it. He gives of himself freely to those whom he has set his love on before the foundation of the world. He gives this to us freely. He begins the work of making you wise for salvation and he makes his people complete. And we see this phrase, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. I don't think if you've been listening to this point, I don't think you could call this a Christmas sermon. But there might not be a better sentence in all of Scripture for this time where we celebrate the advent of Christ. Some commentators will look at this phrase and they'll relate it primarily to Paul refuting some form of early Gnostic dualism that makes the physical inherently bad and the spiritual inherently good leading these teachers to put so much weight on the physical, so much weight on on dietary restrictions or rules about the body, saying do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, binding consciences. And that's likely true. There there is likely a rebuttal here. Um, All of God's attributes are present in Christ, present in human flesh. So how can the physical be evil? But I, I think Matthew Henry has an even better sense of Why Paul is grounding his charge like this. He he simply notes in verse 17 where it says, These things are a shadow of the things to come, but Christ is the substance. These other teachings chase after the hints of the divine and glimpses of eternal wisdom or knowledge, vapors of understanding, flashes of light, some sort of meaning, but Christ is the real thing. He's the full thing. He's tangible and he's present and he's in human flesh. He's close and accessible. He actually walked this earth. And he's even now in human flesh at the right hand of the Father on high. If you turn with me to Revelation 1, I thought of this as I was reading through this text this week. I love the heavenly vision here of the Son of Man that John has, starting in verse 12. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This was our risen Lord. And in verse 17, here's here's John's reaction. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death. And Hades. what always struck me here when I'm reading through it is verse 17. John falls to the ground as though dead before the voice and the awesome appearance of Christ and all of his glory. And what does Jesus do here? He approaches John and he bends down and he touches him. The risen Christ in all of his glory and he bends down and he touches John. I mean, what grace is that? What compassion is that? What mercy that he bends down the risen Lord, the only one who's worthy in all of heaven and earth and under the earth. He bends down and he touches John. And I think there's a contrast here we can make between Isaiah's heavenly vision and Isaiah six, where in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the, the train of his robe filled the temple. And Isaiah has a very similar reaction when seeing God, the father in all of his glory He says, woe is me. Woe is me, as as Stephen Lawson says, cursed is me, damned is me. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is a prophet of the Lord, one of the foremost, most renowned prophets of the Lord. His lips were the best thing about him. And that's the thing that's going to damn him before a holy God. Everything that he had done for God counted as nothing when he's faced with God's holiness. And how is he made able to stand before God? An angel brings a burning coal from the altar of God and sears his lips with it so that he may be commissioned to God's service. But look at the contrast here. Isaiah sees God and Isaiah does not approach God. And God does not approach Isaiah. A coal is brought to him and touches him. But here in Revelation... John sees God and doesn't approach God, but God approaches John and bends down and touches him. That's amazing. That is mercy here. And the one who has burning eyes and feet as if from a furnace. Who is that? Jesus. He is the coal. He does the touching. He does the purifying. God bends down, humbles himself and touches us, purifies us so that we may be Made able to stand before a holy God. And He's able to do this because He is like us in human flesh. There's one mediator between man and God. And He is Himself a man. Our representative, our federal head, the only one who shares both the fullness of God, all of God's attributes, who is holy like the Father is holy, perfect in all of his ways, and yet who is sympathetic with our weaknesses and acquainted with our grief, who is able to both bear our sins on the cross in his body and endure the wrath of God. Can man-made religion do that? Can dietary restrictions, self-denial rules and regulations, getting on in the world, living wisely do that? Could the washings and rituals of, the, of the, the Pharisees do that? Of course not. And that's Paul's point. It's with the vision of the absolute and complete holiness of God that our foolish self-righteousness and moralism dies. Because our wickedness and depravity is exposed and we are confronted with the fact that there is only one thing that can cleanse us and keep us from being swept away in a flood of God's wrath, God's just wrath upon our sin. There's one answer to the great problem of man. What will you do with your sin? And it's Christ in the flesh, the fullness of God in him who cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. Why would you ever try to add to that? To substitute what Christ possesses for some other form of religion, some other form of righteousness. You can take pride all you want. That you don't eat certain foods or you don't drink alcohol or you celebrate or don't celebrate certain days. You don't watch certain movies. Or you don't say certain words. You go to church so many times a week. You can make yourself out to be wise by keeping up on all sorts of speculations, by reading widely and knowing all the conspiracies and controversies and theological debates, but until your lips are touched by that coal, until Christ lays his right hand upon you and you are joined to him by faith, until you understand what it means to be circumcised in Christ, the circumcision made without hands, Colossians tells us, you know nothing and you will not be able to stand before God on the day of his appearing. Christ is righteous for the unrighteous, not the self-righteous. And God's forgiveness is for the guilty. All man-made religion is about reaching up to God through effort. But Christianity, the true religion, is about God reaching down to man by grace. Christ humbling himself. And it's by that grace that we're filled here in verse 10. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule. And authority. In the Gospel of John, it says, "From his fullness, from Christ's fullness, we have received grace upon grace. It's Christ's word which makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in Second Timothy. and it's by beholding with unveiled face the image of our Savior Jesus Christ in Second Corinthians 3 that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. The same Savior and Gospel that saves us and delivers us from the wrath to come is the same Savior and Gospel that fills us in Christ, that fills us with all the benefits of salvation in Christ. His life of active obedience to God is not just an example for us to follow. It is our righteousness counted as our righteousness. His death is our death to sin and our forgiveness. His holiness and His wisdom and His grace become ours as we are conformed to the image of Christ by sanctification through His Holy Spirit. His resurrection is the means of our rebirth and the promise of our eternal life. His ascension and reign above all rule and authority is our confidence and our obedience and mission according to His commands and His intercession for us. Right now at the right hand of God the Father as our great high priest is the source of comfort and conviction and our access to God in prayer. Everything we need, everything we have is in Christ. And we become what we behold. So we see that in 2 Corinthians. as We behold the glory of our Savior. We're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We take on what we study. And if we study these foolish philosophies, if we become captivated by them, we will become fools, not fit for the kingdom of God or worthy of the gospel. Paul tells us not to be taken captive by these foolish teachings, but rather to be captive to Christ alone. If we look to Christ as the fullness of God, as wisdom from God, we will be made wise as we are made like Christ. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When Christ is your full occupation, When Christ is your sole object of attention, you become wise and you become wary of any teaching or teacher or wind of doctrine that would draw you away from your first love and put you back into bondage. So let us, brothers and sisters, not submit again to a yoke of slavery, as Paul says in Galatians, as if our works can do anything to make us more anything but make us more guilty before God. Let us enter into Christ where there's rest from our works and favor from God, life and peace for eternity. Repent of your sin and your foolish trusting in yourself, your foolish trusting in the systems and teachings of man to be right before God. Turn to the truth. There's never enough you can do by these other systems. That's the captivity is it doesn't end. You have to keep rowing and rowing and rowing and you have not gotten anywhere. But if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. I know that I have the favor of God. That's kind of an amazing statement. It might seem arrogant to a lot of people. I know that I have the favor of God. And I know that because it does not depend on what I did. It does not depend on what I do. It depends on who Christ is, what he did, and he does. That's the only way that we can know that we have God's favor. So see to it, brothers and sisters, that no one takes you captive by philosophies and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. For it is in Christ, Jesus himself alone, that all the fullness of God dwells bodily and we are filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the blessing of your word. Lord, I cannot thank you enough for the blessing of Christ. May he become real to us and true to us, satisfying to us this morning. May we turn from our pride, that subtle pride, that sin which so easily entangles us, God. And with new desperation, cast ourselves upon your mercy and on your grace. Lord, you are a wise God and a faithful God and a good God. Lord, the fact that Jesus is king without Jesus as our Savior is is a condemnation for us. But praise you, Lord, that he is our Savior. That you have given us in him all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.